perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Welcome to the Thinking God podcast, where we talk to writers, speakers, educators, and artists who take spirituality seriously and who share the conclusion that hope is still a viable option in this world. And I believe that's how the light gets in. This week, we talked to Jay Baker. Jay Baker is pastor, author, speaker, uh, advocate for all sorts of causes, TV star, and skate punk believer in a higher power. And his spiritual path has been a long, strange trip growing up the son of a megastar televangelist, Jim and Tammy Baker, and watching the rise and fall of that ministry from the front seat. Pieces of Jay's story were told in his autobiography, Son of a Preacher Man, and in a documentary on the Sundance Channel called One Punk Under God, The Prodigal Son of Jim and Tammy Faye, and includes all kinds of trips in his life from drugs and alcohol to starting a church, and he is currently pastor of Revolution Church in Minnesota and hosts the This Is Radio Cast podcast and speaks all over the world with the message of what? What is your message to the world, Jay? Oh, gosh. Uh, right now it's grace and been a lot of Galatians and a lot of Corinthians 13. I'll tell you that a lot of love. Yeah. I just, I listened to your uh, message on love before this podcast and you seem to, uh, you seem to personalize all your messages. You're, you're not one of these people who sort of cast out a, a, an intellectual rubric and just hope people pick some, something up from it. Well, I mean, and I was told early on not to personalize and I can't help but personalize um, I'm mostly self-taught. Um, I just started going to, uh, uh, United Seminary. And so that's, uh, a whole new, new thing for me. They, they just, uh, I just got a scholarship there and which is pretty amazing. But yeah, um, all I know is what I live and so, you know, and what I read and study. And so when you're self-taught, you kind of use all the tools you can. And, and that's what I've been doing for years. Well, I know listening to your podcast and your sermons, uh, your your voice is, of grace is a little unusual, at least among the folks I've listened to, because uh, you have this voice of grace for the people in a place of struggle, both conservatives and progressives alike, uh, including a lot of leaders. I heard in one one uh, interview you had done with somebody, you expressed kindness for both the struggles of the LGBT community and for Mark Driscoll, both. And that's very unusual to hear those two in the same same sort of ba- basket. How did yeah. you get to this place of grace? Well, my own journey of, of uh, I'm 40 now, but when I was probably 19, 20, I really thought God was disappointed with me and keeping records of all my my uh faults and I, I i i thought god had made a mistake and i thought that mistake was me and a friend of mine d.e polk got me reading really for the first time it's strange how much uh, bible i did not read growing up but got me to read uh galatians and uh i think romans and maybe some of corinthians but those ideas and thoughts on grace changed my my world, you know, and then I went from there to reading Brennan Manning and Henry Nowen and Brian McLaren and, uh, you know, a lot of those folks. And, and now I'm reading people like, 
you know, Paul Tillich, and I'm taking a class on him right now. Uh, I kind of had a Luther uh, conversion before I even really understood or knew who Martin Luther was, because I grew up Assemblies of God, so we we were told Lutherans were Catholic light. <laughs> Which, Which was alcohol. a good thing, yeah. <laughs> Which was bad. Well, you, you've said that the only people who believe the Bible literally are fundamentalists and atheists. What role do you think the Bible plays now in, in your message of grace and hope? Well, I mean, I believe that with the proper education and understanding, uh, I mean, I believe anybody can read the Bible, but I think it's good to have context and and, and have some education and understanding of the Bible. And for me, with that, that context that it plays is is keeping it within a context, realizing that it was written, you know, thousands of years ago. Um, but there's a there is a a message that that is sown through time, and that message of love and grace and mercy is something that always seems to be able to stick with us. And so when I talk about you know, loving my enemies, I mean, that's just simple message of Jesus. So when I talk about I love my LGBTQ friends, they're not my enemies. But people like Mark Driscoll or things like that, they may say things against the LGBTQ community and feel like my enemies. Even my own father will say things sometimes that I disagree with. But I'm supposed to love those folks. And, and then, you know, studying people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King made me realize that these no one is 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 really evil um people are are victims and they're victims of misinformation and victims of their own you know ignorance and so you know trying to remember that allows you to have a pool for loving people a lot more i say i have a struggle with liking people um because i'm an introvert but uh but the bible has taught me a lot about love but well, you mentioned in one of your uh, podcasts or one of your interviews with somebody that uh, you had actually been uh, either criticized or people had found it surprising how much Bible you'd used when you speak at various places. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised that people are surprised that I use so much Bible, but um, because I don't feel, I feel like I, I, I barely know it, you know, but I, I guess I know it better than I thought. Um. Yeah, a lot of my Lutheran friends are like, you use so much Bible. And uh, even a lot of the, when I when I kind of, when I came out as a, a, an ally, when I came out gay affirming, oh gosh, probably, in, I don't know, it's been a long time, 10, 11, 12 years ago. A lot of the more liberal churches I went to, they didn't, you know, they were like, wow, you use a lot of Bible. I also had to learn to, that I used a lot of uh, hymns and, 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 and a lot of, uh, what, what's the pronouns? So I had to change the pronouns, but the Bible's what I know, and and uh, I read, and it's what inspired me and changed me. And and my parents also taught me this really basic message of Jesus loves you, He really does, and you can make it, and that type of thing. And you know, I really I believed what they told me, and and even some of what they showed me as a kid. So. Yeah, you know, the Bible to me is a very important book. It doesn't have to be 100% right. It can have, it does have a lot of problems. I mean, I believe it does have forgeries in it. But um, it's not an all or nothing thing for me because it's like a library. And that's, you know, in libraries you have books that are, 
you know, fiction. I, I, I'm, I mentioned this earlier. I'm, I'm a little older than you, but uh, we think we grew up in a similar tradition where the core message was often starting with hell and trying to work its way back to Jesus or God. Uh, do you, how do you view afterlife now, heaven and hell? Um, I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in a literal hell, at least. I believe there's enough hell on earth. Um, there's a quote from a social distortion song, which I'm sure he's quoting somebody else, but says there's got to be a heaven because I've already done my time in hell. And so, um, you know, yeah, I, I, I've become an inclusionist, I guess, for lack of a better term is, uh, I believe everybody is, is, uh, redeemed at the end. Now, I guess when you give up hell, the question is, is then why have heaven? Um, you know, I don't know what the afterlife is. And so that's when some people say, well, you know, well then what are you? And I'm like, well, maybe I'm a Christian agnostic. I can't tell you what lays after, after we die. But, you know, I was talking to Carlton Pearson. Are you familiar with him at all? Yes, I am. And, uh, this is when I still believed in hell. And I said, you know, well, what about Hitler? And he said, well, what you're accusing God of doing is a billion times worse than what Hitler did. And at least those folks got to die in the ovens. And that really woke me up because my message of grace and stuff, you know, it, 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 it didn't line up. And recently I had a discussion with my father, theological discussion, and he said my theology was too logical. And so I have to take it to a logical place, I guess, and, and, and uh, which is strange because I believe, uh, you know, a man died and rose in three days. So that's maybe not the most logical thing in the world. <laughs> well, but... Um, you know, I do like to try to keep it somewhat logical, and so yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm honestly, if I challenge anybody who just does a simple word study on hell, it'll change your mind. You know, in, in like any evangelical who's just, uh, you know, wants to go down to the Christian bookstore and get Greek or Hebrew book and study the word hell, you'll realize that Jesus was not always talking about the same place, and most a lot of the time he's talking about a literal place southwest of Jerusalem. I had an argument, or not an argument, a debate with a, um, a prominent atheist on television once, and he was saying, well, your Jesus talks more about hell than anything. And I said, well, actually, he's talking about southwest of Jerusalem. you know." And he didn't know that, and I felt like you're a scientist, you study all this stuff, and you've come on here to tear the Bible down, at least get do a simple word study. Well, or at least read um, Brian McLaren's book about you know hell, uh, or, or Rob Bell's book, yeah. uh, you know Love Wins. They've raised a lot of these issues. Uh, you've been around the evangelical church a long time, too. Why do you think there's such an obsession? If you look at the the the, the largest churches in America and the fastest growing, there's a tremendous amount of preaching on hell still going on. Well, that's how you keep people there. You scare them. And the problem is, is what do you do when you people aren't afraid anymore? And people feel free, you know, maybe they don't show up on church on Sunday or maybe they don't feel like giving the 10%, you know, or maybe they feel like, you know, hey, maybe I should be giving my money to, you know, starving children in Africa rather than having an awesome worship team. Um, so hell's unconsciously even because I don't think people do it consciously necessarily to scare people. But it just it it there's a part of it that controls you. It keeps you in this this system of guilt. 
you know, and you feel this constant fear. And that's what I grew up. I felt like I could never please God and that I was going to have to have some sort of deathbed convec- 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 convection, not convection. But, <laughs> that's back to hell. <laughs> yeah, but uh, deathbed uh, con- uh, conversion. And so, yeah, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, I think a lot of growing churches, they hold on to those things. I also think those a lot of those leaders uh, are afraid of what their congregation will say. I mean, if you look at what happened to Carlton Pearson, he had one of the largest churches in America. He questioned hell, and it disappeared. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at these pastors who come out in support of gay marriage. You know, I had a nice staff and a nice church, and that all disappeared. So, you know, a lot of times people... Uh, People want to hear what they want to hear, and they want to support what they already believe. And that wasn't what Jesus was about, and that's really a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. Jesus was about always including people who no one else wanted to include, and it made people very uncomfortable. I mean, even his disciples, you know, wanted to kill each other. So, Well, it seems to come with a promise if you just get saved. And I, I know, I remember, I can even, in my mind think of the people who would try to get saved every week because they had another bad week and they didn't know any other way to live than just try to get saved again. Well, if you were with me, you would have seen that a lot. I mean, I remember going to a Baptist camp and being confused because they told me I couldn't get re-saved, that I had to rededicate my life. And I grew up Arminian, so, you know, Assemblies of God, you right, could lose right. your salvation if you sneezed, you know? <laughs> so I was always afraid I was going to, like, drive off the cliff and say shit before I died and then be damned to hell for eternity, you know? I mean, I would really, that was my idea of what God was like. There, you know, the only thing I knew about grace was there was a song called Amazing Grace. Have you and your dad had any discussions about this, about hell? Uh, I mean, do you, do you guys, are you in regular contact? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're not in a total regular contact, but we just spent some time together because it was my son's first birthday, and we've talked on the phone before, and, you know, he'll say stuff like, well, I just believe what the Bible says, and I'm like, well, Dad, I'm trying to tell you, like, this is the context of what the Bible's saying, and, you know. But I also think he's been so beat up, you know, uh, his whole life, and been such a controversial figure that I think he he just doesn't he's too tired. I think he's tired, mm. afraid to take risks. Even though he preaches about the end times and is obsessed with that, and you know, I mean, we had some pretty harsh. I mean, not harsh, but what some people would be nervous about if they had heard us having the conversation. But because and it and you know, to my dad's credit, he says, you know, we. Our number one priority has to be to love one another, which I agreed with, but he was the one who made sure that that was the priority so we could have those conversations. You know, I mean, so we've had the conversations. It's just, you know, he said, well, I'm old and, you know, maybe your generation will come along and change things. Well, you're you're friends with Pete Rollins, and he is sort of one of the guys who is – in the forefront of sort of rethinking how we approach God and how we think about that. I know his uh, rapture video, which parodies the old Jack chicks tracks is just brilliant. Yeah. Um, how has his friendship influenced your spiritual path? Oh, he's made my faith a lot more confusing. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I don't know what I believe half the time. and I don't even read his books, but I've seen him speak about a thousand times. Um, about 999 times too many (laughs) (laughs) 
He's Irish, so we both kind of take the piss out of each other is what they call it in Ireland. That means we love each other. Right, right. Um, no, uh, yeah, but, you know, he got me reading John Caputo and Zizek and, uh, but he got, he, he, he shared a Tillich book and I remember he gave me a courage to be and he's like, oh, I don't, you know, he didn't think I'd really like it. You know, he thought it might be a little bit too much above my pay grade. <laughs> and, uh, I, and it was, but I thought I understood it at first. And then the second time I read it, I was like, I realized I didn't understand it. Um, but I fell in love with Paul Tillich. Um, I kind of had an atheistic point when I met first met Pete Rollins. I'd gone through a lot of hell while I was, you know, been divorced and my mom had died, and I'd spent a few years just not dealing with it. And when I met Pete, all that stuff kind of came back up, and I was on the edge, and you know. Pete, rather than, you know, grabbing me and saying, don't jump, he kind of pushed. And, uh, it, it, yeah, it took me to a dark place. You know, it took me to a dark night of the soul, and there is not a nightlight. You know, it's not like, well, you know, Jesus loves me and grace is there. It was one of those things that, you know, God was dead. And, um, but what for me, I came back around and God became something more like the ground of being, something greater than I could understand and something that was almost completely unknowing. Um, trying to uh, reconcile that with Jesus, I would say, is sometimes the biggest struggle, but I really do feel like Jesus uh, came to show us the true nature of God, uh, not necessarily to die on the cross. I believe he was killed because he was an inclusive, loving person. Um, but I believe that you know, people had gotten so far off from who God was that uh, Jesus came to say, you know, this is what this is what God can be, and that God can change. I mean, you know, you saw Jesus very was very rude to the Samaritan woman, and she, she said even dogs get crumbs from the tables, and he was moved with compassion. And so we even see examples of, of evolution of love and grace in his own life. And then, of course, in the Bible with the Apostle Paul. So it's, uh, I, I'm, I feel like I'm answering, I answered your question and then went on a, no, I think that, no, that's a good uh, rabbit trail. But, you know, that's, that's the type of thing that, that Pete Rollins is, has, has offered me is, is, is encouraging me to have consistency and, uh, also reason to live. You know, I mean, I've, I've had suicidal issues and dealt with mental health and, He's given me a lot of great books that, you know, reasons to live when you feel like there is no meaning. And so, I don't know. I mean, the guy just is, I have not had a, a friend like Pete Rollins, and uh, I love him to death. And we are definitely two dysfunctional human beings, and uh, and I'm, 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 I'm very grateful that he's a part of my life. I want to get back to that in a minute, uh, um, but the... Who who else among your friends or people you've read or speakers you've heard have been transformative in in bringing you where you are today, Jay? Well, definitely Brian McLaren. I mean, um, I had read some of his stuff, but when my mom died, he called me, and then my divorce. Well, found out my wife was leaving me a week later, mm. um, which was tough. Brian called me out to his house and put together this list of things I wasn't going to do and things I was going to do for the next year in order to survive. Uh, 
Brian McLaren is the real deal. Um, there's few people that that I've met that I feel like are 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 because we're human beings, you know, yeah. we're flawed people. It's not anything you know wrong with it. But Brian really is what he talks about and what he says. And um, you know, when you're in the room with him, doesn't matter who you are, you, you, you feel like one of the most important people in the room and very, very Christ like man. Um, he's, he's been a big part of my life. Uh, Paul Tillich, who I've never met. <laughs> right. <laughs> Brennan Manning, who I've met, um, and, and talked with, he, he, he played a big part of my life. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. is huge, huge, huge part of just, radically changing my life uh towards my work with the lgbtq community um and a lot of other people uh randy mccain who just who pastors a church out in in uh, arkansas uh you know and and then let me think uh tony jones uh who was a big part of the starting the emergent church a lot of his books and his friendship has been really important to me. Uh, you know, even though people have their opinions, you know, I've just got, I've been blessed to have been through hell and back. So when I get to know people, I, doesn't matter the baggage they carry. Um, you know, I've seen, seen it, seen it mostly. So, uh, seen it, seen most of it. So we're able to have, you know, these are people who've, who've changed my life. Um, obviously, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, Carlton Pearson, just with just a few conversations, cause you know, he was really close to my parents when I was younger, you know, back in the PTL days and the glory days and <laughs> if you will. And so those are some of the folks, uh, you know, but also punk rock music and musicians. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to just say, you know, films and, and different things like that. You know, they, they, you know, I just saw a documentary a couple of years back uh, on Marlon Brando, and it was just, man, it was just life changing. Well, in your church and on your podcast, uh, you seem to give a voice to those who are thinking about spirituality in a different way. And I know uh, Revolution Church is not a mega church. And <laughs> you've described yourself, I think, as part of the leftovers of the emerging church. Yeah. And in a world that, where there seems to flat screen church movement seems to be where the growth trend is. Um, you're doing something different. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, you probably could have started a church in Branson as Jim and Tammy's son and pandered to the lowest common denominator and gotten rich in the process. But instead you started a church in a bar and, uh, try to do something different. Bar doing something different and and we're really doing well at one time. But you know, we took I took a few unpopular stands and that even slowed that down. So you know, you just my parents really, really. This is the funny thing is is you know people like to you know make my especially my dad the bad guy and stuff. But they really taught me to follow my convictions. You know, both my mom and my dad and. Um, no matter what the cost. And so I've done that, you know, so I don't speak as much as I used to, you know, I don't, 
Revolution right now is is just an online church. I record sermons here at home. Um, I'm looking at starting the church back up as as a community here in Minneapolis. But uh, you know, I just uh, I love what I do, and I like the risk and I like the do-it-yourself mentality. I like the punk rock ethics that come along with it, and so. Uh, I feel really lucky. I just started doing a podcast with um, um, United Seminary. Uh, I'm doing their podcast for them for for probably the next couple of years, interviewing different um, teachers and professors and theologians, and uh, you know. So I'm I'm keeping busy and doing what I love. You mentioned something there, and I noticed it was a little bit of it was evident. And it's been—I know it's been quite a while now. But uh, how did your mom seem to have warmed up to a lot of the things you were going through even then? Did did she seem to be moving towards where you kind of are now before she passed? Yeah, yeah, she wasn't moving there. She was definitely there in a way. Um, you know, she grew up very conservative, so. I, you know, she would have never said, "Oh, I don't think it's not a sin to be gay." But she would also say that God doesn't make any junk and that God made, you know, so she felt like God made people that way. So if I was to have a logical conversation with her, maybe today we could have come to the same place. Um, She was very supportive of me when I came out as affirming or, you know, uh, some people don't like when you use that word, but I don't have any other words right now. Um, And both her and my dad were more worried about what other Christians were going to say or do. Uh, than, than what I was saying. Um, but yeah, no, my mom took me to my first MCC church, which is a, you know, the first openly gay denomination. And that was back when I, you know, thought, oh no, what is my mom doing? And, you know, you go in and you go, oh, these are just people. You know, I mean, I must have been. 15, 16 years old, you know, and I'm going, these are just people. What have I been taught all these years? Why have, what have, we, why have we been taught to be so afraid? Or why have we been made all these caricatures up, you know, or, you know, I went to their house and there wasn't, you know, chains and whips all over the place, you know, maybe downstairs, but that's probably at the pastor's house too. So, you know, geez, man, um, people are people. And so that played a big part of it, you know. Um, but she was, you know, she went to she went to um, gay pride festivals, and she would lead them. And yes, Jesus loves me, and that was her message. You know, it was a simple message. Um, I think that a lot of even my contemporaries would be like, "Oh, this is sentimentality," but she lived it, and she meant it, and uh, she meant it as deep as any theologian or philosopher or uh, minister I know and uh, and she definitely left a legacy with me and my sister and my nephews well, that's, well, that's, that's pretty that's, amazing um, uh, switching gears just a little bit you've been very open about your struggles with depression JM how yeah. has your faith been impacted by clinical depression it's tough because you start to wonder if you know why you know Oh, I'm getting better, but I'm not getting better because I prayed. I'm getting better because the doctor gave me the medication. Or, oh, no, the medication's not working, and I want to kill myself 
And it's not because the devil's attacking me. It's because this medication that the doctor gave me um, has got side effects, you know, and you learn how your mind works. And uh, growing up, I was always taught, well, that's the enemy, you know, uh, or that's the Lord, you know, give glory to God when, you know, all this different stuff. And, and so it's definitely made me more of a, I don't know, wash and wear type of guy, more of a realist, just. You know, I don't go around going, oh, thank God for that parking spot or, you know, anything like that. I I, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's been times where I've been in the middle of extremely terrifying panic attacks. And uh, not only did I take the, a Klonopin, but I was also praying, um, you know, so I, I'd be glad to to try whatever works and I'll take both if, if that's what does it. And, uh, but yeah, it's definitely, I, I don't know how it's affected my faith, but I know it's affected my life. You know, I know it's made my marriage harder at times. I'm, you know, I'm remarried. I have a one year old. Um, the one area it really has affected the least is being a father because I have, you know, when you have a child the first year, it's just, there's something very healing about that, and there's something very amazing about that and sacred about that that has been, when I'm with him, very healing. I think the harder times have been when, you know, I'm not there. Uh, but, yeah, I feel it's important to be transparent about our mental health issues and struggles because growing up, you know, we would hear, oh, those are demons or, you know, depression is just... I don't know. Well, there's still still a lot of uh, evangelical churches offering deliverance or healing from that. You can, you're better now, and uh, now, yeah, that worries me because people kill themselves. Because right. I mean, I've thought about killing myself, you know, and that, and look at how many LGBTQ people killed themselves because they weren't delivered from from that stuff, or they were told they were wrong, you know, and that's 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 the fruit of that type of ignorance. Is, is blood on people's hands, and, and that's just, that's horrible. And uh, that's why it's so important that we edu- help educate one another. Um, but it's harder to educate people if you're yelling and screaming at them and telling them that they're horrible. So I've learned, you know, you've got to love people, everybody, in order to be able to have those conversations. I don't know if you mentioned this book, but you said the, the – uh you mentioned something earlier about a reason to live. Is that you're talking about the Melody Beatty book about a reason to live? Is that what you're talking about, or you're just talking about a reason to live in general? I was just talking about a uh, reason to live in general. That's a very good book for people, though, looking at the suicide issue. Melody Beatty, who wrote Codependent No More, wrote a book called A Reason to Live. Uh, really excellent. Okay. Uh, you, the, your transparency seems to have led you, though, to this place where you seem to be a voice for the marginalized and, and you can kind of fill that in with any of these groups we've been talking about. Uh, but in light of all this, do you still believe there's hope? Do you still see hope in the world? I believe there's hope. Yeah. I just believe it in different ways. You know, I believe there's hope and, you know, helping people get educated, helping people get into homes, helping people find peace in their life, uh, helping people not to sweat the small stuff. Uh, you know, Making the dark night of the soul doesn't always have to be a dark night of the soul, you know, when we are able to help people realize uh, if, if God is greater than we even understand. And like in 
Paul Tillich's sermon, you are accepted, even if, you know, you don't know the name of it, you're accepted by that something greater than yourself, you know, helping people have, understand that gives me hope. Um, but, you know, I don't, to suffer is to live, you know, so I think we have to remember that, that hopes in that, hope is in the suffering as well, you know, hope is... When we suffer, we hope that we'll make it through the suffering, or that we learn and, and, and to deal with it, or or to bring hope to others through our own suffering. Um, I don't like to think of it as like a blanket term or like a get out of jail free card, you know. But there's definitely hope. I mean, um, a hope is you know tonight when I see my wife come home and I pick up my son at daycare, you know. We're going to, you know, have dinner and maybe watch TV, try to go to bed. I hope we go to bed early so we get up and have an easier day because we stayed up a little late. And, you know, you have one-year-old, you don't get enough sleep. I hope the church will change more and be more open to people. I hope the police department will be more open to people of color and will be able to – get better training. I hope we'll learn to be uh, better focused on equality in this country. I hope liberals will learn to have conversations with conservatives as well, because I think we both, we've, we're both stubborn and we've got to get rid of some of that stubbornness and get, stop playing the blame game all the time. So I got a lot of hope, you know, but hope is for stuff that we haven't seen yet. So, <laughs> hope is a you know hope is a hope it's not a fact you know that's the great thing about asking is there hope oh there's tons of hope but is there is there happiness is there a light at the end of the tunnel i hope so well where does jesus play into all this and we've talked a lot about defining however you will but deconstructionism and trying to turn it into something meaningful meaningful what would your response be to somebody who is uh, kind of trying to figure this all out and find a spiritual path. Where does Jesus fit into all this? Man, you know, I, I'd love to just hear the answers to all the every person you ask who when you ask this question because you're having so many good guests on. But um, for me, you know, I was born in the United States of America. I was born in a, to a Christian family. And to me, Jesus drives me this stuff. I mean, I have some of my friends that, you know, still joke like, oh, you believe in the baby Jesus, you know? And I'm like, could you at least say like the 34-year-old Jesus? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Jesus plays a huge role in this because it's been studying that guy's life and people who've talked about that guy and and – People who've talked about, people who talked about, you know, that guy, that has brought me to this place. So Jesus has been my main purpose and focus. You know, where is Jesus? Jesus is my hope um, and is my love. And, and a lot of that simplicity of loving God with all your heart and equally as important as loving your neighbor as yourself, you know, that that gets to me, you know. Um, Jesus keeping his, you know, eating with the wrong people, the story of the prodigal son. I mean, for me, Christ is at the center of all I do. So uh, 
or I'm at the center of that and Christ is the whole circle for me. And so sometimes it's harder for me to say, well, this is where Christ is at when I feel like, well, Christ has been everything. Everything we've just talked about, Brennan Manning, Brian McLaren, Hope, Medication, you know, all this stuff that I've been dealing with, Christ has played a role in that, hell and heaven and um, my mother. And, you know, so so Christ is everything to me. And uh, and I say that sometimes with embarrassment because I, I know how people have betrayed Christianity. And I know that um, how a lot of people feel towards Christians because uh, there's a lot of bad theology out of there. There's a lot of uh, misinformed Christians out there, um, but Christ is still the center for me. If that makes any sense, and uh, you know, and if people go, well, why would that guy say that? Maybe they'll read something. Maybe they'll read Paul Tillich's sermon book, "Shaking the Foundations," and just read the sermon. You are accepted, or maybe they'll bring pick up a new kind of Christianity by. You know, by Brian McLaren, or maybe they'll pick up Faith and Doubt by me. You know, who knows? Well, speaking of that, what is your next project? What are you working on now, Jay? Uh, I am working on staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to school. Uh, I'd like to write a book about depression and faith. I uh, really haven't shopped it with anybody. I've had a, had uh, some book ideas brought to me that I'm just not ready but I would like to do something on uh, – I'd also like to – these are just ideas right now um, in the infant stage, something on the ideas of how the media's opinion and public opinion affects uh, punk rock and Christianity and, and the, the, just kind of seeing the, 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 the parallels there, but also the idea of the parallels of even growing in the emergent church and watching the critics – dictate what it was and seeing a movement that I really believed in die because we allowed critics to 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 really form who we were or not even form who we were but to to say who we were and none of us wanted to of course be identified with what they were saying so we backed away rather than saying well of course we're none of this um the political correctness I think at the time was just everybody was scared and sensitive and um, people's opinions can really uh, affect and destroy things, and it's often people who've been hurt and destroyed themselves. So I'd like to write more about that um, because I, I I fled to the the left uh, because the right was so scary, you know, and I thought that the left would be a safe haven. And what I've realized is it's it's just it's just the other side of a coin. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we've got better cookies and we might take, I think we do better at social justice issues in some ways. Um, but we're also still tear one another apart. And for me, that's the message of Christ is to, you know, love each other. And that's where Christ keeps coming back. And that's the fly in the ointment right there is that Jesus, you know, loving your enemies. And I want to come back to that. You know, that's where I want to come back. And so I'd like to write a book about that. I, I, I believe there might be a little bit of gas left in, in, in a movement that people misunderstood. And I think there's a way to help make me help people understand that because I, I think movements are important. And uh, 
I think if we used common sense, we, we might be able to understand each other a little bit better. Well, I would certainly buy that book and help you sell it. I want to thank you, Jay. I, I, I'll tell you that uh, I, I find uh, inspiration in your approach and your honesty and your message, and I appreciate your voice out there, and I appreciate you staying with it amid all these struggles and, 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 and staying with it, man. I really do appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about it today. Well, Greg, thanks for uh, searching me out, man, and finding me. I'm, 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 I'm grateful to be on here. And when I heard who else you were having on, I was. Uh, it's an honor to be be in it was it's such a group of people, and it's also nice to uh, talk to someone who has a voice that sounds familiar. So, <laughs> yeah, I miss the accents. Yeah, okay. you know, we don't get to hear the Southerners up here in Minnesota, right? Well, thanks a lot, Jay. We'll get together again sometime before too long, and uh, looking forward to seeing what's coming up next for you, man. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. The more I talk to Jay and uh, the more I listen to some of his sermons online and look at his stuff, the more I like him. Good guy. Jay Baker, check him out. Just Google Jay Baker, and you can see uh, all the places he is online. You can listen to his sermons read his books. And uh, just check out what's up in his life. Coming up next week on the Thinking God podcast, it's Tony Campolo, who is 82 years old and still going strong, traveling full speed. And he's going to talk to us about a number of things, including why he no longer wants to be called an evangelical. So I hope you'll join us here again next week and tell your friends about the Thinking God podcast. We're here to talk about hope in a world that needs hope from people who have faith. And there's still a reason to manifest that hope in the world. Shine, damn show better than a ray. Yeah, the people don't mind. We all feel this way sometimes. You gotta let your soul shine, shine till the break of day.